So Sherlock Holmes and Watson were on a camping trip, okay? And they put up their tent and they fall asleep and then some hours later in the middle of the night, Holmes wakes up and he wakes up his friend Watson and he said, Watson, look up at the sky and tell me what you see. And Watson says, well, I see millions of stars. He said, well, what does that tell you? And so Watson ponders for a minute. He said, well, astronomically speaking, it tells me there are millions of galaxies and perhaps billions of planets. He said, astrologically, it tells me that Saturn is in Leo. He said, horologically, it tells me that it's about quarter past three. Theologically, it tells me God's pretty awesome and we are pretty small in comparison. And meteorologically, it tells me that tomorrow's going to be a beautiful day. He's a little proud of himself. He lays back down and he says, well, Holmes, what, what does it tell you? And Holmes uh, is silent for a moment and then he speaks. He said, Watson, you imbecile, can't you tell somebody's stolen our tent? <laughs> Sometimes, sometimes we go to Scripture looking for those deep, impressive, mature depth of, of learning, and we miss the obvious at times. Turn to Psalm 39 if you haven't already, because I get the sense that as David is writing this, that... Um, that there's some depth going on here, but David doesn't want to miss the obvious. All right, next week we're going to finish this series. Um, many of you will recognize verses 23 and 24 of Psalm 139 as this prayer of David, and that's where we're going to finish up next week. But in the meantime, we have um, what we've learned so far. Like We've considered the knowledge that God has of our lives, the past, the present, the future knowledge he has. His pursuit of a relationship with us. We talked last week about his work in our lives, both from the creation of it until each and every day is completed. And yet in this sense, this text, when we get to verse 17, I guess get this sense that David is taken aback by it all. Like he pauses to reflect on everything that he has written and he finds himself in awe of God overwhelmed by everything that he has captured in these verses. Albert Einstein once wrote, he who can no longer pause to wonder is as good as dead. This morning, I want us to pause, and I want us to reflect, and I want us to apply the things that we're seeing in this chapter. But begin with me in verse 17, where David writes these words, How precious to me are your thoughts. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I am awake, I am still with you. The message paraphrases verse 17 this way. Your thoughts, how rare, how beautiful. God, I will never comprehend them. So as David pauses, right, and he considers the enormity as well as the intimacy of God and his knowledge of and his working in David's own life. And as you and I do the same as we ventured through this chapter, 
I want us to consider in, uh, that, that there's an appropriate response. My response to that is I stand in awe. When you think about everything that we have looked at in Psalm 139, it leads us to a place of awe. One translation says in verse 17, How amazing are your thoughts concerning me. Okay? Um, some have suggested that given everything that David has unfolded for us in the first 16 verses, that the New English, New English version is appropriate translation when it says, How difficult it is for me to fathom your thoughts about me, O God. You get that same sense that we had in verse 6 when David laid out all the things God knew about us. And he says in verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. David said, I am in awe when I consider the vastness of God and his thoughts about me. My thoughts, as I just let that wash over me a bit this week, Turn to Luke chapter 2. In Luke chapter 2, um, Caesar, thinking he was in control, <laughs> issued a decree that there was going to be a census. And so Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem in response to that, and there Jesus was born. And after all the things that led to that, they're being visited by shepherds who had been informed of the birth of Jesus by the angels. And in Luke chapter 2, verse 19, in, in light of all the things that had happened in the last months of Mary's life, we read these words. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Okay? When I think about the richness of what we mine from David's words in Psalm 139, I ponder and I reflect and I stand in awe. Karen often says when she ponders, which is something she does better than I do as a regular thing, and just taking that time, she comes to that conclusion, and periodically I'll hear from her words, who am I, Lord, that you should be so mindful of me? Who are we, Lord, that you should be so mindful of us? That is a quote also from David, after God had established a covenant with him concerning his life and his family and his legacy. And we're on the right side of that tension that we talked about in the first two weeks of this series. We're on the right side of that. We find ourselves in awe. Okay? And I want you to miss another piece that's, that's been woven throughout this psalm. And Drew pointed out last week for us that God is not passive. Right? He's not distant in his work. He didn't just shoot the whole thing off and then says, all right, well, I'm just going to stick around for the show. But instead, besides our knowledge, God's knowledge about our lives, he also stands ready to engage us in life. It's not just, here you go, it's, let's do this together. So I'm, I'm encouraged when I read Psalm 139. I feel known. I feel understood. I'm empowered um, to face what, what at least feels like and, and often proves to be some very challenging times in life, but I do it understanding not just that God understands me, but that he is also ready to partner with me in this life that he has created for me to live, the things that we talked about last week. Okay? And I feel this way in part because of one more thing we see back in our text. 
and I find myself having this assurance that God and I are going to stand together. If you look at verse 18, David confesses, when I am awake, I'm still with you. And that's a little fuzzy to me. I think the, the Revised Standard is probably a better version of that. It says, were I to come to the end, I would still be with thee. When I think about where this life is heading, sometimes I have a good sense of that. Oftentimes, I don't. But I know that when we come to the end, God, you and I are going to be together. And that was his assuring. Now, he could be thinking or referring to the end of his life. Okay? In context, he could also be talking about the end of God's thoughts about him, which I, I don't know where that would end. Okay? Or maybe the end of his thoughts about God. We don't know, but either way, David confesses that although he can't know all of God's thoughts, he can know that God is with him, whether it's at the end of life or the end of his pondering. Now, I don't know about you, but I would guess you're like me. I mean, I have often questioned where God is in the middle of all of the muck of life. It's a regular occurrence. But it has been a long time for me, like many, many years, since I have wondered or questioned where I will be at the end of this life. Okay? I shared David's hope, his confidence, his assurance that when I come to the end of this life, um, I will be with God forever. And my confidence has nothing to do um, with my life or my goodness, my effectiveness at what I do or what I don't do, the fact that I serve God or I don't, what my job is or my position, has nothing to do with me being a good husband or being a good dad or being a good friend or being a good neighbor. My confidence is in God and in His promise to save me through my accepting the work that His Son Jesus did on the cross. That is my confidence. I hope that is yours. The hymn writer had it right, I think, when he said, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That is the only hope that any of us ever had. David knew God deeply enough to trust him completely with his life. And I hope you do too. And I think that's where this psalm leads us that we might know God deeply enough that when we question where he is in the muck, that we struggle with what's the next step, when we're trying to live a life that honors him and we find ourselves in the middle of a situation that isn't particularly honoring to him, that we trust him enough, that we trust him completely with our life, even to get out of the muck sometimes, to live in awe of God like David. It's an amazing experience. Okay? And to figure out how to get there and where to go once we do. Okay? I want to spend some time this morning talking about application. Okay? What do we learn? What's a practical way that we can live out these first 18 verses of Psalm 139? And to begin with, I want to suggest that we learn, need to learn to practice the pause. Okay? To practice the pause. Now, remember the quote from Einstein. He said, he who no longer can pause to wonder is as good as dead. Okay? I think that the, like the pause button, not the easy button, 
right? I mean, you can buy one of those at Staples, I suppose, still, or get it on eBay. I never found it to work very well. Like, life is easy, just hit the button. I'm talking about the pause button. And I think the pause button is an extremely underutilized resource that we have as followers of God. Okay? Taking time to be still and know that He is God. Pausing and taking time to search the Scriptures. Taking time to meditate. Taking time to pray. Taking time to place the challenges of this life into the hands of God who knows us so well is perhaps the most neglected discipline of them all when it comes to the Christian life. And yet because God knows us, like fully knows us, we need to seek him. And he's proved that we can trust him. Our culture bows down to the idol of busyness, right? In, in her book called Not So Fast, Slow Down Solutions for Frenzied Families, Ann Croker writes this. She said, America, the land of high-achieving, multitasking, speedaholics. <laughs> We're in perpetual motion, never resting and never quite satisfied. American families are sucked into a vortex of activities and obligations. We pile on appointments and lessons, practices and games, performances and clubs, and then we shovel in fast food. The Western civilization's high-paced, high-speed, fast-paced, goal-oriented life has propelled us into a state of minivan mania, she says. Okay? Or for those of you who swore you would never have a minivan, SUV mania, okay? if it makes you feel better. All right. In that book, she also refers to a book written by John Ortberg that some of you have looked at, read, or some of us have studied called The Life You've Always Wanted. And in that book, Ortberg shares his own story. At the time, he was at the large Willow Creek Church in Chicago. And life was crazy and out of control, he said. So I, I shared with a friend of mine who I was seeking some spiritual direction from. I shared the the condition of uh, the pace of life in Chicago and the rhythms of our family life and the state of my heart. He said, and I wanted to know what I could do in order to be spiritually healthy. He said, and after a long pause, this friend of mine said, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry in your life. To which Ortberg said, like, isn't there something else I can do? <laughs> I don't like that answer. And I haven't always liked that answer. And the man said, no, there's nothing else in your case. So as he reflected on that advice later, Orberg wrote these things in the book. He says, hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. Hurry can destroy our souls. Hurry can keep us from living well. He says, for many of us, the great danger is not that we will renounce our faith. It's that we will become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we will settle for a mediocre version of it. He who can no longer pause to wonder is as good as dead, said Einstein. So when was the last time that you made time to pause? 
that you took time to wonder. When you allowed yourself time to reflect or to decide or to worship or to give thanks or to ask for wisdom or strength or to appreciate something or someone, even the gift of life itself. Practice the pause and you'll find that it leads you and also allows you to secondly to seek him. First we practice the pause and then the benefit of that is that it gives us time and space to seek God. Some of us who are action oriented at least find solace in the fact that there's purpose in the pause, right? To seek him. And yet it's not just taking a break. It's not just relaxing. It's not just slowing down, though I've found um, great value in that <laughs> at, at this point in life that could or could not have something to do with there no longer four teenagers in my house. And I understand that up front, right? Um, but eventually I, I've discovered the value just in those things. But I'm not talking about just relaxing, just slowing down, just a different pace. What I'm encouraging is us to practice the pause as a spiritual discipline. Okay? Talking about disengaging from the grind of life long enough to seek God, to seek direction from God, to seek understanding from God, or simply to respond to what God is saying in my life. And for me, it has to be chosen. Okay? It rarely just happens. And I think I'm pretty normal in that way. Even, even when it's planned, even when it's purposefully chosen, I still find it sometimes incredibly challenging to pause and to just be still and to just be silent and to seek God. Okay? Now, that might be um, because like Chris Young, sometimes I just hear voices. Okay? You remember the song 10 years ago probably? You know, It's not always you know, my dad saying, work that job, but don't work your life away. You're not always mama saying, drop some cash in the offering plate on Sunday. Not always dad saying, quit that team and you'll be a quitter for the rest of your life. Or mom saying, say a prayer every time I lay down at night. Or grandma saying, if you find the one, you better treat her right. And from the looks on some of your faces, you have never heard that song before. And I'm amused. You may not be amused, but I am, you know. So for some of you, you're totally lost. And for others, you know, you're saying, thank you for putting that song in my head. It's going to be there the rest of the day. Okay. But most of us have a hard time, even if we can get our bodies still, having our hearts and our minds be still because of all the challenges and struggles and even good things there are in life. Life is full of distractions. Okay. Whether it's the tyranny of the urgent or the guilt of the past, whether it's the fear of the future, the demands of other people, or simply um, our own voices speaking to us in very difficult ways. If we don't learn to pause and seek God, okay, it's unlikely we're ever going to experience Him deeply. We're ever going to understand His ways. We're ever going to appreciate his involvement in our lives and we're ever going to know his answers 
to life's challenges that we face. That's the value of the pause that turns us into seekers of God himself. Remember how Jesus concludes in the Sermon on the Mount, a section on worry? And in that section, he's talking about uh, things that we need. He's talking about our appearance. He's talking about um, all of the necessities of life that consume us. After that section, he comes to verse 32 in Matthew chapter 6, and he says these words. For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. If most of us um, spent the same amount of time and energy seeking God that we do things that God takes care of, we would live in awe not only of the God who made us and the God who knows us and the God who pursues us that we've read in this chapter, but also the God who provides for us. Okay? I'm convinced that we would live in awe of him were we to practice the pause alone, much less seek him. Certainly, if we do those things, we would have much greater clarity about the life that he has planned for us that Drew talked about last week from Ephesians chapter 2. So we practice the pause, and we seek him, and then finally, the third step, we, we respond in faith. Okay? Can you imagine the difference in the quality of our lives if we would choose to pause and then seek God and then respond in faith instead of charging on, <laughs> deciding on the fly, and then asking God to rescue us from the mess that we've created on our own because we left him back there somewhere and we missed the pause part of it all. Okay? Now, I think obedience always requires a certain element of faith. But listen to me here. Okay? In my more sane times, okay, I often wonder which requires the greater leap, if you would, proverbial leap of faith, giving my best shot or following God's direction when it's sought and provided. Okay? I think obedient faith is not always such a leap when we put it in perspective. In fact, I think when we press the pause and we seek God and we respond in faith that it's often our safest and our most confident response in life because we know that we are accompanied by God each step of the way that he has laid before us and we're not figuring it out on our own. And we're not struggling to find the answers. Instead, we're waiting for God we're seeking him, and then we're marching confidently in the direction that he has provided for us. Um, I want to close with a story. I find it uh, just very inspiring. Even if you're not a sports fan or a baseball fan, um, I think you will as well. So 21 years ago, Oral Hershiser um, was pitching for the Los Angeles Dodgers, and they were, like all good baseball teams, playing in October. Okay, and you understand what I'm talking about, some of you. <laughs> All right, so that year, um, he was an incredible pitcher. He got the nickname the Bulldog, and, and so he's pitching for the Dodgers. The Dodgers are going to win the series. 
and Oral Hershiser is going to be named the most valuable player. And not as much as we have these days, but back then they're still capturing video of these players doing different things. So imagine it's the ninth inning, you're at the end, close to the last game, you're basically just a, a short amount of outs before your team wins the height of your sport, right? And, and the video captures Hershiser leaning against the edge of the dog, dugout, appearing to talk to someone, okay? So it's a, a short amount of time later that Hershiser is on, this will date it too, right, is on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, okay? And Johnny Carson starts asking him about what, what he was saying, who he was talking to. He said, I wasn't talking to anybody. He said, well, what were you doing? And he said, well, I was singing. And, and, and that's just, you know, just the bait, right? And, and Carson thought, oh, you're singing? I didn't know you were a singer. And Hershiser was kind of a backwoods guy. And he's like, oh, I'm not no singer. And he's like, no, we went, what were you singing? He said, oh, it doesn't matter. He said, no, what were you singing? Sing it for us now. He said, I'm not going to sing it for you now. But by then, the audience is yelling, sing it, sing it. And so... Finally, Oral Hershiser starts to sing. And these are the words that came out of his mouth. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. And Johnny Carson was speechless. And the audience was silent. Until one person started to clap. And then they all broke out in applause. I mean, can you imagine, like, the adrenaline of the most valuable player on this team that is on the most important stage of their sport, on the verge of being crowned the champion of all of what it is you do for your sport? Can you imagine in the middle of that being able to press the pause and to seek God? And what was he doing in the middle of that? He was singing the doxology. He understood how he got there. Who gave him everything that he had and who created this opportunity. And he understood what David teaches us in this psalm. That we stand in awe of God. We press the pause button. And when we seek him, it draws us closer to this God who is worthy of all of our lives. If you don't know him, or you don't know him like David knows him, if you want to know him, let's talk. Let's pray together. Let's get you connected like that to this God who wants to know you that well. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to worship, and we're going to sing. As we do, I'd invite you to just join us in the back if you want to talk about getting to know this God in this way. All right, let's pray together. Father, you are indeed the one from whom all blessings flow. It's hard to see that in the hurry. It's hard to find that if we don't stop and look. Sometimes when we stop and look, we see evidence of your work in us and all around us. But if we don't stop, 
we don't pause, if we don't worship, if we don't seek you, sometimes we come to the wrong conclusion that you are nowhere to be found, that you're not in the mess. Sometimes we even think that you're the one who made the mess. Lord, may you peel the scales off of our eyes, the scales of sin, the scales of busyness, the the scales of complacency, all of those things that cause us to miss you in this life. And may we instead engage you in such a way that we might know you even as we are known by you. This is our prayer in the name of Jesus.